Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. On today's podcast, I'll be talking to journalist Tanya Sweeney about a piece she wrote recently for the Irish Times in which she shared her experience with postnatal depression, something that affects up to 15% of Irish women and more maybe, yet is rarely talked about with such honesty. Later, We sent the youngest man working for the Irish Times, Jack Power, off on his holidays to Ibiza recently with a copy of Respect, Everything a Guy Needs to Know About Sex, Love and Consent by Inti Chavez Perez. Jack talks to Roisin Ingle about the book and whether it would be useful in helping young men and boys get their heads around sex, relationships and that complex issue of consent. But first, Roisin is here in studio with me for a chat. Well, this is actually not like us because, as you know, we're a very, very serious bunch of people full of piety and passion and all the rest. But however, there is a story this week that we simply cannot ignore. And if you haven't heard about it, well, then all I can say is you are actually living in a cave or you're a deeply spiritual, uh, isolated person. Uh, and of course, it's the Wagatha Christie story. Hashtag Wagatha Christie, which my favourite bit of the tweets, which have been amazing. Donald Clark tweeted, whoever came up with hashtag Wagatha Christie deserves the Nobel Prize for literature. But unfortunately, they didn't agree. win it. Two other people won it. That is most unfortunate. One of them a woman. Do we know who coined it? Do we know we who coined it? don't know yet. But probably Colleen Rooney could find out with all her sleuthing. Tell us what happened. Tell us about Wagatha Christie for the person well, in the Wagatha cave. Well, Wagatha Christie came about because Colleen Rooney uh, has a private account apparently on Instagram, which I don't quite understand because I don't think any <laughs> accounts on those platforms are private. But anyway, there's a very private to Colleen and a few chosen mates. And she began to realise that a lot of stories were being sold to The Sun, that wonderful, serious newspaper. And that um, they had to come from somebody within this particular account that she had on Instagram. And so what she did was, Wagatha, she blocked everyone on the account except for this one person and fed this person a series of fake stories over a period of about five, six months. Uh, The stories duly appeared in The Sun, such as gender selection in Mexico, the basement flooding, which, as you know, is an enormous story (laughs) in their 20 million pound mansion. And I forget what the other one was. (laughs) They all duly appeared in The Sun, Roisin, and um, Colleen had her woman. And the the woman, no, rather, let's keep this legal because Colleen did. I know what you're going to say. Colleen kept it legal, she said. But can we read it out, the last bit? Because I think it's it's sort of such a good storytelling that it needs to be given its full um, due because I think the ellipsis in this, as somebody said, there has never been a better use of ellipsis in the world. Which is a dot, dot, dot. And also, let's just say, this this Wag of the Christie thing made for the best day on Twitter in a very, very long time. Possibly since the start of Twitter. I personally feel sorry for anybody who did not get joy out of it this week. I don't care who you are. There were some people going, I don't really... And everyone was just like, listen, then... The political editor of the Sunday Times said, if you don't know who Colleen Rooney or Rebecca Vardy are, you might try Google rather than parading your ignorance (laughs) or middle-class superiority on here. And I am absolutely with him on this case. So her last bit was, she says, it's been tough. I'm going to do a Liverpool... Does she have a Liverpool accent? It's been tough keeping it to myself and not making any comments when the stories have been leaked. However, I had to. Now I know which account slash individual it's come from. I have saved and screenshotted all the original stories, which uh, this person has viewed them. It's dot, 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 Rebecca Vardy's account. At which an entire nation googled Rebecca Vardy. I'm afraid I had to. I know who Colleen Rooney is. I didn't know who Rebecca Vardy was. Me too. So Rebecca's married to Jamie Vardy, who's a footballer with Leicester City and an international, I think. 
So the thing is, very clever of Colleen, because this has obviously begun, been run past the lawyers. She said it's Rebecca Vardy's account, therefore leaving the way to be not saying necessarily her, but it came from that account, which is a fact. But Rebecca Vardy is saying she can't believe, and other she's not Liverpool, she's more posh, isn't she? She says she can't believe, while heavily pregnant, that Colleen is doing this to her. I mean, I know it sounds like, as Burger King had an ad up yesterday saying there's more beef in our burgers than Colleen, between Colleen and uh, Rebecca. It's amazing. Well, it's everywhere. actually, Victoria Derbyshire programme okay. tweeted last night, exclusive. This programme has learned that Rebecca Vardy has instructed lawyers to do a, quote, forensic investigation, close quote, on her Instagram account to see who's had access to it and when. Uh, and there was more on Victoria's programme today. Uh, so clearly Rebecca isn't taking this lying down and she's very hurt because she has tweeted back, as you probably know, saying to Colleen, why didn't you ring me and discuss this with me before you did it? Because she has nothing to gain, she said. She doesn't need the money, uh, which I did think of actually. Why would she do it? Um, there is there is a question of motive there, which I think is makes it open to something. But explain the joy, Cathy. Why has this just taken off in such a way? I mean, it was trending all day yesterday. I We're think all the, just yeah. The joy I think is that it came in the middle of one of the most awful weeks in our era in terms of Brexit, in terms of the world being on fire, in terms of Trump being particularly deranged. Um, Turkey is, has declared war on the Kurds who saved us from ISIS. Um, a whole pile of things have collided. And I believe, and I would normally be the first to say we should be discussing Syria, we should be discussing Turkey, we should be discussing the deranged rulers of the UK and the US. In this case, I would say we needed a break. And this provided it in spades. No harm has been done to anyone apart from possibly Colleen and Rebecca. But Colleen's coming out of this very well. But they're married to footballers and as far as I can see have done very, very well out of it. I don't want to be bitchy about this but I saw a, a, another tweet, tweet because I really got into Rebecca's Twitter hear. account. I thought yes. I knew a lot about it. Uh, and it was, there was an interview in a magazine called Fabulous. Right. I didn't even know there was a magazine no, me called neither. Fabulous. Sounds good though. And in which the, 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 the push was you didn't. You don't realise how strong you are until you are. Until being strong is the only thing you've got. How Rebecca Vardy overcame abuse and betrayal to become the first lady of football. Now, Roshin, as you know well, this is in a week when serious women footballers are which playing we're going to talk about. Which we're going to talk yeah. about all over the place. They are women of footballers. This woman is not the first lady of football, and I think that's part of the reason why okay. some of us think it is highly entertaining because we're not hurt for her in, a, in in any particular way. We're not hurt for Colin because Colin has come out well on top in this. So there's everything to be entertained by and the memes are simply unparalleled. Did you see the Guess Who board game where yes. Colleen's sitting there, Rooney's Guess Who, and there's the picture of Rebecca on the little... Uh, Posting. And I have to say, there's an excellent pass notes in the Guardian newspaper there today. Is. And just on that note that you were saying, uh, it's saying, well, why should we not be talking about Brexit in Syria? And they said, listen, the planet is a cascade of unending misery right now. Two wags having an unnecessarily public Barney on the internet is exactly the distraction we all need. Give us this, you grump. So that's to anyone who thinks, what are you talking about this for? <laughs> and two wags who have given interviews all over the place and who are now moaning about having their privacy interfered with. And everyone's like, you know, they should send Rooney, Colleen Rooney in to sort this out and that out. And she's, it's just, but the Wagatha Christie is yeah. an, most, the most amazing hashtag. And I think it was one of the best moments, days on Twitter that I can ever. remember ever. Yes. I mean, it really united everyone. You know, there's always people who don't want to get involved in this, but I think everybody except very, very few people who yeah. were grumping from the sidelines were, was into it in a big way. Yeah, and we just recommend you do what Tim Shipman of the Sunday Times said. Just Google it and amuse yourself for a few minutes. It'll do you no harm. Exactly. Speaking of the real women of football. The real women of football. great win this week for um, the Irish team. They beat Ukraine 3-2 on Tuesday. And they now top the group for the Euro 2021 qualifiers. And they might need to even need to play the playoffs. Well, yeah, they might not. There's still a bit of a way to go. I think they have a few more matches. And Germany's in that group because Germany goes through straight away. Yeah. Um, you'll know I've been talking to Maliki Clerken, the presenter of our sports yeah. podcast. Um, there is a bit of a way to go, but it was a brilliant start to get past Ukraine. 
and to you know and it puts them in a really good position It's fabulous and also I think there's been this great discovery of this Wexford youth striker called Rihanna Jarrett yes. who got her first international goal and I think surprised herself as well as everybody else so that, that she's someone to watch and that makes it really exciting when you become invested in particular personalities and there is as you said Roshan a long way to go I discovered to my horror this morning that actually the final game is not till late next yeah. year sometime. I mean, we have we're, we're, the next one, I think, is against Greece. Then next March is against Greece. Then there's versus Montenegro in March. Then Germany. Then not till September against Germany again for some reason. And we're going to have to sort that out and keep an eye on it. Yeah, we'll keep an eye as we go along. And I loved hearing Vera Pau, um, the manager yes. on the radio. You know, it was so refreshing because I often think of these women's teams of all different sports and they're usually the manager is a man. Yeah. Um, but it was nice to hear her. She sounds like a great person. And she doesn't talk in cliches. No, she's fun. No. it was actually really an, an, a, engaging listening to her, which is not something I say about Absolutely. listening to sports people Absolutely. a lot. So she's brilliant and she's well behind them. And the other thing was that they had a great crowd in the Tallis Stadium. Now, not as big as it could have been. I think they got an allocation, I think something like 8,000, but then people didn't turn up. So it was smaller, but it was still a big crowd. And, and that was fantastic to see that people are getting out and supporting them. Well, too. we're going to have to invest ourselves in this, I think, over I think the next so. year. Maybe we'll yeah. have to go to a soccer I think match, Kathy. What do you think? I think we'll have to go to a soccer okay. match. Yeah. <laughs> but not to the other kind of soccer match, the kind no. that Rebecca and Colleen play. But we'll still follow them as well. Well, well, we definitely follow them for a little while. But the we, joy. Yes, the joy, the joy. The joy is yes, there. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when they sort out who hacked Rebecca's account. I know, it's oh, still going dear. on. So before we finish, um, I had an email this morning and I just wanted to give them a mention because there's this unique and very inclusive feminist festival happening in Ennis on October 19th and 20th and it sounds great. It's got 400 participants and it's an opportunity to reflect creatively on silence and voice as part of their journey as women in Ireland. So it's called Silence and Voice, a Festival of Feminism. And they're going to have all sorts of speakers and some of the topics they're going to be discussing are feminism, anti-racism, environmentalism. Some of the speakers at it are... Margareta Darcy, who's from the Raging Grannies, oh, who you know and love. Margareta Darcy from Greenham Common woman. and all the decades yeah. down the years. So there's a load of people, um, including five of the residents uh, living in Liz Dunvarna Direct Provision Centre. So the amount of different kinds of voices you're going to hear in that is really something else. Tickets for the festival, they're available via Eventbrite and from a Gmail account which is nccwnclairewomen at gmail.com that's nccwnclairewomen at gmail.com the tickets range in price from 20 euro to 50 euro for the two days but there's concessions available and the ticket prices include a light lunch every day and which is brilliant the event offers a free informal babysitting service that must be booked in advance um, a light and also, lunch and free babysitting isn't that great good lord you can't go wrong you and don't need also, to go to the talks at all <laughs> and also Irish Sign Language Interpreter so um, they also have a Facebook account, which is Silence Voice, a Festival of Feminisms, or by emailing that email address, I said. So they really want people to come along and celebrate. It's in Ennis. It's going to be very interesting. And with all those different voices included, I think it's unlike anything you'll find anywhere else. And speaking of plugs, the women's podcasts are going to Belfast on October 26th. Well, I saw this on Twitter. I know. Twitter. How did you have time with all your wagons? I don't know. Because um, I came across it. But we are going to uh, Belfast on October 26th. We have Amanda Palmer coming to a podcast with us to talk about Northern Ireland and abortion and the very incredible proposition that we're very close to um, this consultation period which is going to result in uh, abortion access in Northern Ireland uh, because of Westminster's historic decision that happened and so it's really interesting it's to look at what we can learn from the repeal campaign in terms of changing hearts and minds in Belfast and in the North because obviously it's still quite a divisive issue up there they haven't had the benefit of a citizens assembly or that long lead up where they're kind of talking about it it's just been kind of foisted on them and for some people that's quite difficult for other people obviously it's wonderful so we're going to be talking about all of that and we that's have That's a very interesting take on it Roisin I think that's very important to remember that it is quite a different process up there Really and is. it's well worth bringing the women's podcast so we up have there Paula, to discuss this Paula yes. Bradshaw from the Alliance Party on who's the health spokesperson and we have Danielle Roberts from Alliance for Choice and a really great performer called Kelly Turtle and Amanda Palmer is very kindly going to sing her song Voicemail for Jill which is amazing and uh, I think it'll be a great Amanda day Amanda so Palmer your friend is a great catch. <laughs> thank you. So it's Roshin. in the Belfast Mac if anyone wants to go and find Roshin it. Ingle, thank you very much indeed for that very jolly exchange. 
Thank you. Unusually jolly exchange. Um, <laughs> and we hope to bring you an update next week <laughs> on Wagatha. People would ask what was wrong and I'd have no answer for them. I could start to see the low-level panic and alarm in B's eyes when I'd be so sullen or silent. He'd come home one afternoon to find me lying in bed, the pillow damp with snot and tears and sweat, the baby somewhere nearby. In one particularly terrifying and disturbing moment, I could picture myself in my mind's eye throwing a glass of water over my gorgeous, tiny daughter. I was circling the plug hole. I could feel it. This is how journalist Tanya Sweeney described her postnatal depression in a recent piece written for the Irish Times. Around 15% of Irish women experience postnatal depression, though much of it goes unreported, with people dismissing their anguish as the baby blues. So it was no surprise that this column by Tanya struck a chord with so many. Tanya came into studio to speak to me about PND, about writing the piece and the reaction there's been to it. Tanya, postnatal depression is one of the worst things I can imagine because it's depression, but also with the responsibility of a small baby. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, do you know, it's the craziest thing that ever happened because I'd experienced depression before, Cathy, you know, that sort of one where you just, you know, you wake up first thing in the morning, you're like, oh, is it not bedtime yet? You know, and you're just cosmically drained. So that's sort of your commoner garden depression. The funny thing about postnatal depression that I found. Did you deal with that first kind of depression? I did. Yeah, I'd had that before. I mean, it was sort of tied up in grief when my mum died, you know. So, but, you know, I I found very hard to sort of get over that. And my doctor did put me on antidepressants for that. And that was fine, you know, got through it. Learned an awful lot about mental health illness. I actually went, you know, in the couple of years after that, I I went and and volunteered in AWARE and I did a lot of uh, volunteering in St. Patrick's Hospital. And just just because I wanted to find out a lot about what had happened, really, you know. But anyway, so I got pregnant, as as most people know. We do. And I write like I'm the first woman Mark, who ever a gave series birth. series of articles in the Irish Times for anybody who wants to refresh themselves. <laughs> exactly. Refresh themselves, that's that's definitely the word. But yeah, so I, I basically gave birth and, you know, you expect it to be a very, very happy time. And in fact, I wrote a column, do you remember, right before I gave birth about dying for the, you know, I wanted to just get the show on the road, you know. And I was like, get out and come on, let's get this going. I'm dying for this now. Well... So I gave birth in the rotunda and it was a great experience. But the first few days I cried constantly. I couldn't actually get over why I was crying. Which, which they call the three day blues, if, course, I, well, if I remember said, right. Exactly. Yes. Someone said it to me. They said, don't be afraid of the fact that you're mm. crying. It's just what happens. Every time someone pulled back a curtain, I went, how are you doing? <laughs> oh, I just went mental. And I mean, God love the midwives. <laughs> At one point, they on night two, they took the baby off me because I was obviously like, you know, losing it, you know. So they were like, we're going to take her into the office. You have a little sleep for yourself. Now, I was wandering around. I was still on the catheter and I was still on the drip. So I, I was wandering the corridors of the rotunda. I mean, I don't know how they didn't think it was haunted. And I was just like, where's my baby? They've taken my baby. I mean, I was really now out of it, you know. So went can I, home. Can I just stop you? Yeah. I had you a difficult birth? It doesn't sound complication no, it was, free. It was, it was incredibly, it was a doddle. I had a, an elective C-section. So it was, I mean, you couldn't, I mean, it was, we were chatting about coffee and stony batter and mm. I mean, it wasn't even like a childbirth, if you want to put it like but that. But that's the catheter and, and, and the drip. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. But I'd, I've, ha- I've honestly had more difficult, you know, um, visits to the dentist, you know, so it was fine. But I think it was just, there was this mad surge of hormones, this, cra- you know, this little thing that needed to be looked after, the sleeplessness, the chorus of crying babies in the ward. I mean, what I, I don't think I'd even really, you know, prepared myself for any of it psychologically. But I got home and that was another kind of crazy moment as well. And again, just was crying a lot, sleeplessness. But then you sort of realise that this is not just the baby blues that everyone gets. This is not just my life is, has been turned upside down. You know, you kind of understand that something else is is kind of happening here, you know. And is that because you'd had previous depression under quote, quote, unquote, normal circumstances yeah. <laughs> or because this was something entirely different? I think it felt very, I mean, what I started to realise was um I mean, I, I knew I was going to be anxious. I'd actually sent a text to somebody going, oh, for a little anxiety cat like me, this motherhood lark now is is really not our gig at all. It's t- it's weird, you know, because every time, I think even on the first couple of nights, you know, I was afraid that the baby was dying. She was really quiet. And I thought that meant that she was, you know, there was something wrong with her. And 
every five or ten minutes I was just like, oh, there's a scratch on her ear. I've done that. Oh, there's a rash. So that's a problem. You know, I mean, it was just, I think you're just, you just want everything to go so well that your anxiety just, you know, is ratcheted up to 11. So um, I kind of understood that I had the anxiety. But then I started to like, um, you know, Google things like, why does my baby hate me? You know, and then you're starting to realise maybe this isn't quite, you know, um, the normal run of the mill new mother experience. How far in are we at this stage? I was about maybe five or six weeks, you know. I think about six weeks. My my mental or my public health nurse came actually and every time she had come to the house before I had a list of, you know, what does that gurgle mean? She's breathing a bit like this. She she does that. And, you know, I was very, you know, and she kept saying, you know, you're doing a good job, you know, relax. And I was in the house on my own with the baby. My partner was at work and the nurse went, now, how are you doing? And I mean, it was just like a dam had bust really, you know, and... She asked me a couple of questions, you know, do you feel like this all the time? You know, have you spoken to anyone about it? And she said, I think you need to go back into the rotunda to the mental health nurses in there, you know, which is what I did. And um, I think and, I said and, this. And in because the, of your experience, Tanya, mm. your previous experience, I presume this didn't, this wasn't too alarming. You just thought this is how one deals. I with sort this of kind knew. Of yeah, I knew yes. that if you, the thing about postnatal depression or depression in general is once you um, acknowledge it, and I've always been the person who goes, right, I'm, I'm unwell here. What do I need to do to fix this? I don't try and outsmart it. I don't try and outrun it. I just go, right. I, you know, I'm at your mercy here. You tell me now what I need to do to get rid of you, you know, instead of the other, you know, a lot of people just think they can soldier on, you know, and or I just, pretend that, that that they are like in the in the in the in the movies that this baby to, and themselves are the coziest, most loving. Exactly. Well, especially with we have postnatal depression. And I think I'm finding that, you know, with so I think a lot of older mothers are going, why are mothers finding it so much harder these days? They have everything. They have every gadget and gizmo. They have all the information you could need at the touch of a, you know, on your smartphone. Why are they, you know, saying that it's so hard? And I think there's almost that burden of too much information, you know, for, for someone like me. Um, and there's also, of course, you know, you, you, it's so easy to find people who are just going, oh, my God, this is such a toddle. New motherhood is great. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm like, come back to me when your mother has moved out of your spare bedroom and we'll talk about how hard it is, you know. But aside from that, it's, you know, it, it, and, you know, there is a lot of people who are like, yeah, it's grand. I don't know what the fuss is about. It's, it's, it's fine. And then, of course, if you're finding it a struggle, mm-hmm. you're thinking, well, I'm obviously useless at this you know it's supposed to be the most natural thing in the world I'm crap at it not really you know um, embracing this role as readily as other people are you know and I mean if you think about it you know you have a screaming stranger who's just landed into your house demanding to be fed she's not paying any rent you know she's very cute and everything but Mm. you know you're getting this what I call the the let me speak to your manager scream you know every two hours all except, I kept hearing, except you don't actually know that what she, that's what she is saying. Well, exactly. It, all how I kept hearing was, is that? oh, it's. I mean, all I kept hearing was, "You're getting one star on TripAdvisor off me." That's it. And I was like, "She hates me, and she thinks I'm crap at this, and she wishes she was with somebody else." And it's funny because my partner was incredibly relaxed, and I think that kind of was another layer of complication because he took to it very, very easily, you know, and was able to just, you know, wander around the house with her going, look, that's a banana. There's a picture of your granny. And I was always just like, you know, um, Emily Blunt in The Devil Wears Prad. I think that's the best way I can describe it. You know, you're you're trying desperately hard to please a, a very tyrannical boss, you know. And were you in your head at this stage seriously alarmed? Daniel? I wasn't alarmed. I started to realise that my mind was sort of playing tricks on me. You know, I I started to realise that, um, you know, I was I wasn't having a um, how do I put this? I wasn't having the sort of typical mother experience. You know, I was kind of, you know, almost enjoying, you know, going into my own little world and having a big old cry. I mean, it was almost like a bit of an emotional bulimia or something, you know, And I thought that doesn't sound right to me, you know. So after a while, and like I say, it did take the public health nurse to actually push me through the door. I mean, I think I probably would have soldiered on for another while, you know. And um, yeah, there was very much a case of once I got to to the rotunda, I think this is where it all sorted to knit together as a as a sort of a diagnosis. You're given the Edinburgh questionnaire 
Um, and basically what it is, is it's a little sort of a sheet where you're, you're, you know, you're asked to take a few boxes. In the last seven days, I have not been able to laugh readily at things. I've not looked forward to things. I have not, you know, um, you know, whatever, felt this towards my baby or felt this towards my partner. And then there are a couple of very serious things like I have thought about harming myself or other people, you know, so. And how you? I mean, very momentary. I think there's just this sort of tiredness and you're like, I just need to be out of this whole scene, you know. And I, I think as well, like I did become a mum at 42, which meant I had many years of carrying on to my liking, going to the cinema when I wanted, lions on tap. So to have all that kind of be, you know, not taken away from you, but, you know, to, to readjust to a life where you are, you know, basically... You know, uh, what I used to joke and call it mummy jail, which is kind of unfair, you know, but I do remember having a couple of moments where I'd go off to the shop on my own and I'd be walking back to the house and I'd be like, this is just ceaseless, you know, it's this is it now for the next 18 years. I'm kind of screwed, like, you know. Uh, Can I just say, Tanya, you were also recovering from what is actually major surgery for all your attempts to minimise it. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I mean, I'm very lucky. I've heard of people who have had very, you know, um, traumatic births and complicated births and, and, and women who've had, you know, um, children with, you know, health issues. I mean, I didn't have any of that, which I suppose compounded my shame. Mm. I was like, I should not be feeling like this. I have a baby that's very, you know, amenable in the overall scheme of things. Healthy as a trout. I had a grand birth. Why am I complaining? You know, it felt very, very, you know, yeah, curious to me. I suppose, I suppose as there was one line in, in the piece you wrote for us a few weeks ago, Tanya, where you said, in one particularly terrifying and disturbing moment, I could picture myself in my mind's eye throwing a glass of water over my gorgeous tiny yeah. daughter. It's not the worst thing you could have done, of course, but I know, it was nonetheless, a it's a sign of, of, of how despairing you had become. Yeah, I mean, she was she was in the high chair now. She was going purple with the screaming. Do you know that kind of way? And I thought, how do you cool this? How will I cool this one down now? And I just remember thinking, oh my God, you know, and it was a horrible moment. I just saw in my mind's eye, just her little face kind of going, you know, uh, <laughs> and I just thought that's that's a really horrible even thing, place for your mind to go, you know. And I think that's where I realised that, you know, I needed a little bit of support, definitely. Yeah. So in you go to the Rotunda. In I went to the Rotunda, uh, had the baby with me, was bawling my eyes out, even walking through the, this is, I think that's how I opened the column on this, you know. <laughs> All these, you know, pregnant women were kind of looking at me going, is this what's going to happen to me, you know, when, because I was now really despairing. But, you know, once we get into a room, you know, she kind of, you know, the mental health nurse centred me. We kind of talked about what we would do. And we talked about, you know, accessing counselling and medication and support through their team. So that's exactly what happened. And I think once I knew there was a care plan in place, you know, I felt, OK, you're really, you know, you're you're trying to take care of yourself here, you know. So just give yourself a break for a second, you know, and... um and it was made to feel quite normal, Tanya, when you were in there, oh was gosh, it? Yeah. Nobody was standing around looking alarmed or saying, we need to pay, pay a special visit to see how your child is. Or that Not sort of at thing. all. No, oh, gosh, none no. of that. No, no, no. I mean, they're very, they're very understanding. I mean, I think this is quite a, a common occurrence, you know, and when somebody does come in and, and, and kind of hold their hands up, I think there's a lot of women, new mums, who, who just think that this is how it's meant to be now. It's meant to be tough and it's meant to be... Mm. Um, you know, quite claustrophobic and isolating, you know, but and they don't feel that they should be accessing help for that, you know. So. Well, I see in your piece that about uh, 15% of Irish women experience postnatal depression. I'm 15%. amazed it's not higher. 15% honestly. is a lot, even at that. Do you think it's a lot? I, I do. Think it's, I, I think it's, it's probably a very normal reaction to everything that's going on in your life. Well, you if know? we're talking about, about depression that needs treatment as opposed to going around in your dressing gown instead of at four <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon and not having showered for three weeks, <laughs> well, which I, mean, I think like is fairly now. normal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, when you think about it, a clinical sort of diagnosis, you know, absolutely. I mean, I suppose if you look at the scramble of hormones and the sleeplessness and the uncertainty, that's probably quite normal. But you're right. I mean, a clinical diagnosis is, is, is you know, it, it is worrying. You know, it's a, it's a disturbing. And trend. when you went for help, were they able to sort of unpack what was going on with you in particular? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was tied up in, you know, the things that had happened in my past, you know, with the grief as well for my mum. That was obviously a huge thing. Um, was was is that, is that yeah, because I've heard of this of mm-hmm. people who've lost their mum in particular yeah. that that absolutely soars to the the, the, totally the front does. of your thoughts when you give birth. It really does, and especially I think when you give birth to a little girl, you know, as well. I think I think the whole thing is is tied up in a very uh, confusing 
package, I suppose, you know. And see, a lot of that had to be worked through for sure. Um, There was a lot of, you know, other things going on, you know, missing work and having to kind of put aside that side of my... I mean, I had maybe, you know tied up a lot of my self-worth and self-identity and being able to work and be a good worker. So I had to shelve that part of me for a while. That's obviously very um, discombobulating as well. And of you course, know. you're you freelance, don't you? Well, there is that. Yeah. So, so there's the uncertainty of yes, that. So, yes. yeah, well, that was there was a lot going on. Yeah. So how long did it go on for Tanya? You know, I got diagnosed, I think, when the baby was about six or seven weeks old and I started to feel better. I mean, I went to counselling, went on to medication. Everything started to flatline, I think, after about three or four weeks. So, you know, I started to feel a little more kind of like I could manage things. Definitely. Does that mean you started to feel happier or you started to feel you could actually I wouldn't cope? say happier. I mean, I think what happens with medication is it sort of flatlines everything. Mm. I mean, I think when you're unmedicated and this happens to you, you're, you're, you're just your emotions are just, you know, wildly going up and down one minute to the next. And I think I said that in the column, you know, you feel like you have just blossomed into technicolor. You feel like, you know, if anything happened to this baby, yeah. you would you would never get over it. And then a moment later, you're like, where's my passport? I need to just get on any flight. I'll go to the Isle of Man at this point just to be away from this house. You know, it's maybe I'm just a drama queen. I don't know. But, you know, I mean, there was all these very, very, you know, uh, you know, wildly contradictory emotions colliding up against each other. It's a lot, you know. And so the, the, you, you stayed on the medication for how I'm long? still on the medication. You're still on the medication. Yeah, and how, I think that's... How, how old is the baby now? The baby was eight months old yesterday. What's her name? Isola. Isola. Mm-hmm. And how is Isola? She's amazing. Is she still she's shouting cheeky. at you? She doesn't shout. She kind of, um, she's laughing a lot, you know. She is brilliant. Oh, she's forgiven you. I your initial so. I think I'm up to maybe three stars on TripAdvisor <laughs> now, you know. She's holding for... But she is, I mean, she's such a dose. She's the nosiest thing I've ever met in my life. And I'm like, you know what, if journalism exists when you're an adult, you're going to be absolutely flying it because she's so curious about people. And, you know, um, she also does this thing where she looks at two-year-olds having tantrums in the supermarket, you know, and she kind of gives them this the state of you look, you know. She just gives them the most withering dismissive stare and I'm like this gives me hope I mean maybe we will you know bypass the tantrums in the supermarket if this is what she thinks of them you know the apple doesn't fall far from the tree well exactly yeah and we look (laughs) we look forward very much Tanya to having you back to look at the next phase oh yes when when she lies down on the floor of the supermarket and and shrieks and you lie down beside her and you you, 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 you say I'm not getting up until you well this is it I mean every time she does shout at me I kind of go back at her you know and she kind of looks as if to go oh yeah Yeah, okay it's not working exactly yeah Yeah. she's very funny she's very smart now I mean everyone one kind of talks about how sharp she is. So Tanya, one last question. Anybody who's listening to this who's about to have their first baby Mm. may very well be quaking with terror at this stage now. Sorry. Is is there any way of predicting this? I mean, I know, for example, that say women who have have lost their mother, Uh uh, they are in some cases advised Mm. that that, that, that childbirth may bring that back. Absolutely. Um, Were you told that? I wasn't told that, but I was told that if I had a history of depression, that that would be a risk factor, you know. So, I mean, I think on day three of of when I was in the Rotunda, the mental health nurse swung by, you know, to just keep an eye on me. What I would say to anyone, the advice I would give is, you know, if you're Googling, am I experiencing postnatal depression? There's a very good chance that you're experiencing postnatal depression. If you think you have it, you know, go and investigate because they will be able to tell you one way or the other whether you're fine or whether there's something else kind of amiss, you know. If you're finding it, you know, hard to leave the house or you're finding it hard to, like you say, get out of bed, I mean, that's that's almost normal for new motherhood. But it is worth exploring in yourself how you feel. All I will say is the sooner you get looked at, the quicker you'll feel better, you know. And what I find really reassuring about this whole thing, Tanya, is that once you looked for help, you got it. Yeah. And it was very professional. It was and, a very straightforward road back to yeah. wellness, you know. And like I say, you know, antidepressants, I think a lot of people think that once you're on antidepressants, you're just going to be a zombie. But I mean, I'm I'm able to work. I'm able to function really, really well because of them. You know, they've just sort of flatlined my emotions a little bit. And so. you've talked for at least 20 minutes. Have I? As cheerfully and perkily as you always have. What a babble so. mouth. <laughs>
Good Lord. <laughs> Tanya, it's been a pleasure as always. Thanks, Kathy. And the very best of luck to you and Isola. Thank you. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Now, the world has changed and the revelations of the Me Too movement have raised serious questions about how men are raised to understand consent and their own sexuality. With his book Respect, sex educator Inti Chavez Perez sets out to create the first guide to sexual health and relationships built around consent. To find out if it does just that, we gave a copy of the book to Jack Power, an Irish Times journalist in his mid-twenties. He spoke to Roisin Engel about it and about how he and his friends talk about the issues raised in the book. Jack, thank you very much for doing this uh, job for us. We sent you out with a book called Respect, Everything a Guy Needs to Know About Sex, Love and Consent, which has a lovely aubergine on the cover. (laughs) Yeah. You went off to uh, your holidays to Ibiza and you read this book. Tell us how you got on. Yeah, so just before I went... um when the producers of the women's podcast uh, asked me if I'd be okay reading this and, you know, coming on and chatting about it. Uh, so I was just about to go away for 10 days in Ibiza. So I took it away. I was like, Grant, it's a nice uh, summer, summer read to take off with me. So when I brought it abroad, a few people that I went with were kind of giving me the kind of the side eye saying, what, what exactly did you do in work that they, uh, they gave you this book before you went <laughs> on your holidays to, uh, to read? <laughs> Not a good look. But listen, this book is aimed right at teenagers. You're clearly not a teenager anymore. anymore. But we wanted to sort of see whether you thought this was a, a, a book that would have been useful to you as a teenager and something that you might press into the hands of other young men in your life or people that you know. So just to give uh, people an idea of the kind of thing that's discussed, there's things like, is my dick normal? Um, is my penis too small for intercourse? Feeling horny? Porn, respect, sexuality, uh, blood during sex, losing your heart on. There really is no stone unturned, no, Jack, in this not. book. I think it has to be said. So take me through it. What what was your sort of thoughts as you were at first reading the book? Yeah, so as I was reading it, as you said, it is kind of aimed at teenage boys. But I thought it was really, really valuable, actually. If I'd you know been 16 or 14 or 17 or whatever, like this book would be... Um, I suppose slightly embarrassing perhaps to get from my parents or something like that. But it'd be a really, really valuable read. Um, like even reading it now, I'm really 25. You could kind of pick out the, um, I suppose, the pieces of advice the book gives you about you know, relationships and kind of, I suppose, navigating puberty and hormones and you know, kind of women and a lot and saying, you know, oh, yeah, this would be great if I'd known that, you know, 10 years ago. I wouldn't have embarrassed myself in this way or that way. Um, so it's really, really valuable. OK, so tell me about your own, say, sex education in school compared to, say, what you might have uh, yeah. seen in the book. Are they completely worlds apart? I su- suppose, you know, everyone's, the vast majority of people's sex education in Ireland, when they think back to, you know, either um, sex ed in late primary school or in secondary school, most people you will say that there wasn't any. Um, I was lucky enough, I went to uh, Mount Temple Comprehensive School down in uh, the Mallard Road. So that was actually quite good, I think, compar- compared to a lot of schools in terms of talking about you know, sex, talking about relationships and kind of talking about consent in a, in a nuanced way. But, you know, the vast majority of people, uh, I suppose, their sex education in school was literally the chapter in the biology book about this is the, the penis, this is the, the vagina, these are the various um, you know, reproductive organs um, coming at it from, a, I suppose, a very biology point of perspective. And not, you know, kind of a, a relationships perspective in terms of how to manage um, that whole sphere of, you know, kind of women and, you know, intimacy and sex. Because it seems like now more than ever, young men need that kind of guidance because they're getting all these messages about, you know, Me Too, about consent classes, all this stuff. And it's kind of coming at them. But yet maybe the context and like you said, the nuanced kind of story isn't really um, necessarily there. Uh, and it seems to me that, that this book by uh, Inti Chavez Perez, who's a sex education sort of teacher, is trying to bridge that gap. So for you, were there any particular parts of the book that you thought, wow, this is absolutely amazing and, and young men need to read about this? Yeah, I think one point or one kind of, I suppose, aspect of the book or approach of the book is it didn't really approach, you know, the issue of consent, you know, big capital letters, you know, you know, when a big hammer to kind of beat you over the head. Or a big aubergine. A big aubergine to beat you over the head. But uh, it took a, a really much more nuanced approach. It kind of weaves the idea of consent into relationships in terms of how do you say 
what's the the right way to potentially like you know ask somebody out on a date? What's the wrong way to do that? Um, you know, stuff like send, sending unsolicited dick pics um, and why well, you shouldn't do that. I have to say, I was really surprised just flicking through. There is an actual thing about how to send a good dick pic. Yeah, I know. It, it, like, the book is... A uh, flattering one. The like. book is fantastic in terms of it is really, um, it's really, really open about, you know, um, just sex Whereas, you know, I suppose um, parents or older people might be kind of trying to shield people from that kind of thing and just want to go, oh, don't ever do that. But the reality is that is what young people are doing. So it, it, this book really addresses those things and says, well, don't but don't send one if someone doesn't want one. Mm. And what's the difference? How do you how do you pick up the signals that, that people might want something like that from you? Absolutely. And I think one of the, um, I suppose in Ireland as well, because we have, you know, kind of a segregated um education system where the vast majority of schools are all boys schools or all girls schools so I think that's I suppose really kind of harmful in terms of how lads in particular kind of you know grow up and view women as this kind of other you know kind of object to be you know a group of lads um, you know uh, standing outside the road to you know catcall some girl across the road or um, you know kind of approach women in a more nearly kind of adversarial way as something to be you know kind of chased down and, you know, um, hunted almost rather than, um, you know, kind of an equal kind of partner. So one of the ways I think the book is really valuable in terms of it talks about, you know, how men have this kind of, I suppose, power in the sense that the the world is kind of skewed towards them in a lot of ways and kind of talks through, you know, talks to a young, you know, young male reader as to how you can kind of think about that yourself and think about, am I, you know, feeding into this by, you know, standing in a group of lads and shouting at a girl, kind of walking home across the road or, you know, um, you know slut shaming a girl, kind of, you know, if a lad sleeps with five people, he's a legend. If a girl sleeps with five people, she's a slut. You know, asking young lads reading this book the kind of question like, well, I'm actually, am I feeding into this? And then it kind of poses the question like, um, there is other ways to kind of approach, you know, women. Um, so I think that's a really kind of, interesting way to do it and it doesn't um, it doesn't kind of hit you over the head with it in terms of screaming yeah. the words you know kind of patriarchy and kind of feminism it kind of talks in a very down to earth um, you know kind of manner that really makes it seem just like common sense because it, it seems to me that it'd be, it's a very hard line to, to follow without being patronising mm. or without indeed kind of alienating or, or making the sort of male reader feel like that they're doing everything wrong yeah. there's a kind of kindness and generosity in the tone Oh, totally. It's it's not. I, di- I didn't find it, you know, patronising at all. Um, and I think it's probably because the book deals with, you know, issues like you know, dick pics and everything like that. Porn, porn. You um, kind of you really do um, masturbation. Masturbation. Yeah. You find it easy to relate, uh, you know, kind of to the author and not see it as this kind of lecturing voice from down on high telling you, you know, exactly how to. Um, you know, live your life and how to you know approach women and stuff like that. So, would you like with your friends? Would you talk about stuff that's in this book? Do you do you find? I mean, we have this sort of uh, stereotype of women, you know, and Sex in the City came along and suddenly we were all exchanging these stories, uh, which wasn't necessarily true, but I suppose it did kind of herald a time when people did talk more openly. What's the situation with young men and your circle? Yeah. Are these things that you discuss with, with each other? Yeah, I suppose my kind of friend group is. Uh, kind of mixed of kind of boys and girls were probably like too close and probably too open a lot of people would say about um, you know all that kind of really? stuff really yeah okay. um, and is that because you think you went to a mixed school that wasn't the same sex school that you... um, I don't know I, I think I'm generally open enough about that kind of stuff and maybe a lot of it does probably come from you know going to a mixed school where you know you're just chatting to you know women all the time you see women who are vastly smarter than you you know vastly better than at sports at you um, and everything like that. I think that helps around um, a lad in a way that an all-boys school probably doesn't. Um, so what kind of stuff do you talk about then when you say that you're very open and very curious? Uh, <laughs> Are you like literally <laughs> talking about... I know. <laughs> ah, no, we're all friends here. No, it's but all, I suppose, um, like say for example, if uh, you know, one of the girls in the group got an unsolicited dick pic, she'd, right. she'd be straight into the WhatsApp group really? and say, oh, Jay's lads, this happened to me. Or if somebody had, you know, a funny interaction with somebody on Tinder or something like that. Okay. Um, be stuff like that. So do you think maybe, um, it sounds like it to me and hopefully that's the case, that you're holding less baggage than say, you know, my generation or the one ahead where we kind of, we didn't feel able to necessarily talk about that stuff. And it seems like, like that girl in your in your group can get support from mm. the lads and can the lads are going to come and say that's, that's terrible. Yeah, no, so absolutely. So it's I not think, a divisive thing. Yeah, I think, look, our generation is probably the, 
one of the you know, generations that properly grew up with social media. I think we're kind of a sharing generation. We can at times be on kind of output too much in terms of firing everything out to the world in terms of on Twitter or on Instagram. Um, but I think it does that does kind of seep into just being open about things more more general in terms of like sex relationships. It goes into toxic masculinity a little bit and, and that kind of thing. What What's your own take on it when you see that, when you see that sort of stuff, like say in a pub or, you know, with your friends, female friends getting hassled? Is it, because it's da- it's, it can be a dangerous situation sometimes or volatile to get involved. But what's yeah. your own feeling about getting inv- involved in those situations? Yeah, I suppose the book makes a lot of really good points in that kind of sense around toxic masculinity. Like say if a lad is, you know, kind of, um, gropes a girl or something like that and he says you know it's up to you know the other lads around there to kind of say to him you know that's that's not okay but that can be you know a kind of a kind of a hairy yeah. a hairy issue to try and get yourself into I remember um, you know over the summer um, we were at a night out and um, some lads groped a, groped a girl grabbed her breast and I got into a kind of a, a scuffle with him um, and your man was, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a slight, uh, fairly scrawny lad. But the fellow was like quite a big guy. Um, so he probably could have absolutely knocked my head off if he wanted to. And thankfully, you know, the situation kind of de-escalated. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it is up to lads to kind of step in there and say, that's that's not all right. But you do kind of run the risk. Whereas, you know, if, if a female friend jumped in there, the lad might just kind of sneer at both of them. But if a male friend jumps in, like there is the danger that the the other fellow who's groped somebody is going to shove it to the ground or throw a punch at you. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about this book too is, is it's not just for heterosexual guys either because there's stuff about uh, having sex with men. It's a very open kind of, you know, it's not yeah, preaching to one type of definitely. guy. Definitely, that's one thing that I, I was going to bring up as well. I think this would be a great book. Um, say, if, you know, if you're a parent and you you know, you know think maybe your son or daughter might be you know, gay or bisexual and you're kind of wondering how would you kind of, I suppose, broach that topic. Obviously, you know, there is still the awkwardness between Irish parents and, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, teenagers. Um, so I think this book would be great in that sense as well because it's not a book that's, you know, just about, you know, you know, coming out as gay or something like that. It's very much like it has those aspects in the book that talks about, you know, you know being gay or being bi or kind of learning to try and understand that and you know, kind of come out and tell us kind of different stories about people how they came out so I think it'd be really like it's really valuable um, from that side of the, the equation as well and you know we hear a lot about porn and the billions and billions of visits to sites like Pornhub and kind of this idea that boys particularly are learning about sex from watching those things I mean is this book a kind of um, counter to that is that kind of what it's tr- hoping to do is to give another side and say and to sort of debunk some of the sort of the myths that porn uh, gives young men. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a really kind of healthy way to approach, um, just generally approach kind of sexuality and intimacy for a young person, trying to understand that kind of minefield compared to, you know, watching a um, video on Pornhub or something like that, which doesn't give you a realistic you know, depiction of sex at all, the further thing from it. Um, so I think it really is kind of a good counterweight to... Yeah, and even like talking about female body hair and stuff like mm. that and not saying, you know, it doesn't always have to be like this. It can There can be yeah. hair there Another and it's okay. Another myth as well that, you know, um, young men you know, don't think that women or young women, you know, watch porn or masturbate, kind of demoking all that as well. Yeah. So who would you give it to? And would you would you think you'll go out and buy a few copies for Christmas for certain people? Or, or is, it, is it something that we <laughs> can we, do I'll in like Ireland that, still? I'll be that but, older cousin. <laughs> but are, yeah, I know. But are, they'll thank you one day. But um, no, are we there yet in Ireland? Like, do you think this could be on the coffee table at home and, you know, be a perfectly OK thing? I, I just, sorry, I'm very distracted the, by the, the aubergine. <laughs> on the front cover is very, um, uh, very distracting. But yeah, yeah. I think... I think it would be a very good book, you know, for a parent or kind of a an, an older uncle or an older cousin to buy for, you know, somebody who's between, say, 14 or 13, upwards to, you know, 17, 18. And even I, you know, you know found uh, a lot of value and worth reading the book myself, even though it is aimed at, you know, kind of a, a younger crowd. You're kind of going through the book and kind of saying, oh, yeah, I wouldn't have made that mistake if I'd, you know, read this book um, you know, 10 years ago. So I think it is um, really valuable, even valuable for you know, lads in their 
early 20s, whatever, they wouldn't, uh, they shouldn't automatically, you know, sniff their nose up at it. Okay, well, I think it's great that there is books like this coming out now to, like you said, counter the, the other side. And I mean, it's sort of, it, there's nothing shameful about this. And there's nothing, sex is celebrated as something to be enjoyed and a healthy part of relationships. So it's not like it's prudish or, you know, po-faced or anything mm. about it. Um, well, I'm glad you, I'm sorry it gave you a few funny looks on your holiday <laughs> in Ibiza. But um, I think it was uh, well worth having a read of it. Yeah, and it was a really good read. Uh, it says it's an all-encompassing guide to help guys navigate sex relationships and consent in the 21st century and just reflecting the fact that the world has changed so much. And I do think there's a lot of pressure on young men, like supposed to sort of know what to do, supposed mm. to have all this hardwired into them. But the patriarchy has kind of t- sent you loads of other messages. So yeah, you can't just suddenly... Well, even in terms of, say, kind of college age, you know, the, the issue of consent is such a hot topic. And it is. it can be confusing for lads you know, to have this kind of black and white and you know sometimes there is you know grey areas for example say if you meet somebody out on a night out and you're both you know plastered drunk you know where is the line drawn and consent there it is kind of a it is a tricky one for a lot of men who probably are young men who probably are afraid of you know um, I suppose you know making a mistake potentially totally unin- you know unintentionally uh, making a making a mistake like that around the issue of consent yeah. Okay, so we're recommending it and maybe throwing it surreptitiously under the Christmas tree <laughs> <laughs> just with no uh, no name saying who it came from. Um, but thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about it, Jack. And I, I do think it's very useful. And thankfully, there's a lot of other books coming along the line mm. on the same vein, opening this up and just letting us talk in a proper, healthy way. And that's it for today. Thanks again to our guests, Tanya Sweeney and Jack Power. And a reminder that the book Jack was speaking about is called Respect. Everything a Guy Needs to Know About Sex, Love and Consent by Inti Chavez Perez. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Engel and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.